Hello, everyone, and welcome back to season two of the Scale of One to Tech podcast. Had a couple of months out, got married, had the summer off, had a bit of downtime, but I'm really pleased to be coming back for a second season of the podcast. And I think everyone's really going to love it. A little bit different this season. What I'm going to be doing with each episode is it's basically broken down looking at different industries and sectors. This month's episode is sponsored by We Discover. We Discover has supported high growth companies like Carwow, ThreadFi, and many more. And as specialists in paid search and marketing technology, We Discover aims to be the most consistent source of growth for their clients. If you're a scale up with multi million pound growth targets or an already big and successful company looking to invest smarter, our friends at We Discover will make a great extension to your team. You can click the link in the show notes or go to we-discover.com to learn more and book a free consultation. Today's episode is all about D2C and I'm joined not by one, not by two, but by three CMOs from within the D2C space. On today's show, I've got Tushar Kool, who's the CMO at Bellerin Duke. He's also an advisory board member at the Marketing Society. Next up, we've got Luis Lacerda, who's the CMO at a brand I'm sure you've heard of, HelloFresh. He also is ex-urban and ex-house trip. And then last but not least, we've got Frankie Athill, who is CMO over at Finisterre also ex-Mindful Chef and ex-Patch Plants. So an absolutely fantastic lineup of guests that you will hear from all on this one episode. So look, let's get on with it. Thank you guys for joining me on season two, episode one of the Scale of One's Tech. It's obviously the first time that I've got multiple guests uh, all on the same podcast, which uh, I'm really excited and, and nervous about at the same time. But this episode is obviously all about D2C. So here with me, we've got Tushar Cool, CMO uh, at Bella and Duke, uh, also advisory board member at the Marketing Society, Luis Lacerda, CMO at HelloFresh, also ex-Urban and House Trip, uh, and Frankie Athill, who is CMO at Finisterre, uh, also ex-Mindful Chef and Patch Plants. Guys, welcome. Thanks for having us, Alex. Good to be here. Thank you for having us. Good to have you guys on. So I guess, look, before we get into it, it'll be good for those listeners that don't know you to learn a little bit more about you. So Tushar, I'm going to start with you. Give us a little bit of a potted history as to your kind of career journey to date and, and what, you're, what you're up to at the moment. Great. So I think for, for me, my career started a very... I would say in a very unorthodox fashion, I um, ended up doing a graduate program back in, God knows, like it was a lifetime ago, and that was with Scottish government. So started off my early days with public sector and very quickly realized, actually, this is not what I really want to do in terms of the pace of business and the pace of things moving for me. And then moved into a, a private company, a retail company called Campbell's, and they uh, head up their e-commerce direct-to-consumer business for a good number of years. And um, I think that to me was the the first taste of uh, direct-to-consumer and, and performance marketing as well. And ever since that happened, I got um, headed into Bella and Duke, where the chairman asked me if uh, I was looking for a new challenge. And I was just in the right place at the right time for that because raw feeding for pet owners had just about taken off. Uh, it was already an established norm in the U.S., but in UK, there wasn't any big massive player who had really cracked the D2C market. So I was, I was very fortunate to just jump on the bandwagon at the right time, at the right place with the right guys. Just quickly, for those that haven't heard Bella and Duke, what, what's it all about? So we are a pet wellness brand. Um, in a sense, what we do is we give, uh, we do household deliveries on raw dog food and raw cat food and believe that species appropriate diet is best for your pets. Lovely, lovely. Brilliant. Luis, tell us a little bit about your journey. Yeah, so I'm originally from Portugal. I started my career uh, in consulting. I liked a lot of the elements of a consulting life, but not necessarily all of them. So I moved on to work on a digital agency, um, one of the leading uh, agencies in Portugal, working with, with brands like Coca-Cola and brands from the Nestle Group, which is a very, very kind of interesting experience. Then actually made my way back to consulting life, but to work on 
one of the marketing departments in uh, in one of the most uh, prominent consulting companies in Portugal, uh, which was more kind of a more uh, an experience more aligned with, with what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, which was to be really focused in marketing. I then did what a lot of people do, which is to say or to think I want to go away for one year and have an international experience and end up coming to London and staying now for almost 13 years. Uh, and since since I've been in London, I've this is my fifth business. The first three of them were all marketplaces. So two of them uh, within the holiday rental space, very performance marketing kind of mindset uh, and kind of practices, uh, very analytical. I then went to work on, at the time it was called Urban Massage. Nowadays, I just call Urban. Mm-hmm. And they are like a wellness platform that puts together um, therapists uh, or or uh, practitioner, independent practitioners with with people like like us that want serv- like wellness services on demand. I led their marketing department uh, for a couple of years, and then have a a smaller a smaller venture in a a company that is trying to crack how to get goods and services inside people's homes and and do it in a safely manner. Like I, you could think about anything from Amazon parcels to a cleaner or a dog walker, so anything. Uh, this is a company called Glue Home mm-hmm. that did stay there for one year and then was invited to join HelloFresh, where I now am for the last almost four years uh, living here, the oper- the marketing operation in the UK. And so in a nutshell, that's my journey. Fantastic. And Frankie, last but not least. I worked in six different marketing agencies, various types between advertising, digital marketing and research. Then I joined Mario Testino and built his online Instagram following. And then I joined Patch close to the very beginning and built Patch Plants for four and a half years, online plant company in the UK. And then joined Michael Chef in the interim role as chief growth officer. And most recently as um, interim chief marketing officer at Finisterre, a sustainable apparel brand from Cornwall. Lovely. Lovely. Well, look, thank you. Uh, and again, welcome everyone. And look, I've got some questions for you guys. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask them individually but certainly look jump in i don't want this to be just a i ask you you answer if you've got some opinions some thoughts then then look please jump in and and let's see how we get on frankie i wanted to start with you on this one d2c companies surge during the early stages of covid19 but a few years on with people shopping back in physical stores and wider issues that we're all facing like inflation cost of living energy crisis etc how can D2C brands remain competitive and how does marketing play a part in that? A uh, good place to start. Hey, we've had a we've had a pretty easy time of it the last couple of years and, and all got a little bit overexcited. <laughs> Us, uh, you know, kind of the larger brands, you know, over that time were joined by literally millions of smaller brands, some of which have stuck around and will continue adding to the competition, adding to the media costs over the next few years. And um, it certainly got harder quickly uh, with tracking issues coming in at the same time as cost inflation, at the same time as um, uh, increased competition. So definitely going to be a big change. It's not going to stop for the next year. It's going to continue to get harder. How can we combat it? One, I'd say the obvious thing, which is focusing on the customer experience and increase your lifetime values. Because once you've got them to try whatever it is you're selling, you need them to come back and tell their friends or your business model doesn't work. So make sure that that's good and invest there first. Two, maybe if you are going to, you know, brand who's relying on fundraising, slow down. Like cut your costs more than you think you need to cut them. Slow down on your growth ambitions. Reduce your burn. Buy some time because I think things are going to continue to get harder for the next 12 months before they get easier. Remember that marketing isn't the solution to growth. Marketing is a useful part of growth, but really, do you have a good business? Do people love your product? Do you really understand your customer? Do you deliver things well? You know, the basic building blocks of the customer experience are the building blocks of growth. And marketing's, you know, one one of the tools in the toolbox. So you're right in your question to imply that it's not all down to the marketing team. But how can marketing help? Really understand the customer, understand how you're different, focus on the basic building blocks of marketing, right? Where if you're going to be pulling back on reach for a while pulling back on your costs, extending your runway, it's a really good time to fine tune the proposition before you go back to the market. So I think while we've seen a lot of brands rush into the market without a very good product, without a very defined proposition, 
this is a time for you know for those brands who are going to hold on through this period to um, to focus on that. I think um, Frankie has definitely set the scene uh, in, in the right place. I think all, all of us are in the same boat as Frankie described in terms of cost pressures, inflationary pressures, and consumers are no different from it. So, so of course, yes, they are feeling the squeeze. I believe my my view on it is is yes, definitely where unit economics haven't been defi- defined and where there's still brands, new, newer brands are still trying to find product market fit. Yes, 100%, they should be looking at improving on those along with customer experience before they think about growth because you won't have a business if you don't do that in a year's time. And that's the brutal reality of it. But equally, at the same time, I think other brands who are on the scale-up stage or much more mature stage should be focusing on reminding customers on the value-add proposition. Because right now, all subscription businesses, speaking for Bell and Duke now, all of our customers' wallets are getting reviewed. You know, They're looking at what subscription we want, what do we not want, what's essential, what's a commodity. So I think from that perspective, those brands who are forward-thinking and looking at, okay, where can we align ourselves with uh, other partnerships where we add more value to the customer proposition for the same price and, and demonstrate to them that actually... You get a lot from your current subscription package, and it's not just a commodity-driven purchase. I think those are the brands will be really successful at the at the end of this, in, in, in my books. And, and I'm already seeing some of the brands doing that in, in the D2C food and drink uh, world. Brilliant. I, I, I completely agree with the guys thinking. I think businesses in general will want to have a tight control over uh, their cost structure. I think they will try to find savings and efficiencies across the organization, and I can come in the shape of automation or, or identifying low-value-added tasks or, or work streams and uh, maybe get rid of those, uh, reorganizing their team resources, etc. So I think there will be like a tightening of the structure itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think some companies may want to, um, um, if, if they have better price points than their like physical equivalents or some of their comp- competition, they may want to highlight that. And if that's not the case, they may want to find the aspects of their value proposition that may be superior uh, and and focus on those. Uh, traditionally, if you think D2C versus physical, it's it's mostly about convenience or personalization or kind of saving time and effort, etc. So so they may want to double down on some of, of the aspects of the value proposition. I think brands may also want to double down on, on their general CRM practices, both to engage with their current customers to, to, to drive frequency or drive a higher higher basket value or to re-engage with previous customers to, to, to stimulate repurchase. It's way cheaper to engage with your previous customers than finding new customers. Mm-hmm. I think generally speaking, comp- brands and businesses will have to, to, if they don't have yet a strong understanding of, of their marketing profitability, they will need to make sure they get this right. <laughs> because it's, I think generally speaking, companies will, aim to reduce their risk profile uh, and and that means being 100 100% sure like as sure as they can be on the payback of their marketing efforts and i think lastly trying to push for for reasons to stay connected engaged to the brand uh, and that can come in the shape of for example loyalty programs so i think there's a, actually a lot of things that d2c businesses can do to, to stay competitive, but it's, it's obviously everyone is in the same game and it's it's going gonna, it's gonna to be competitive. Definitely, definitely. And one thing I was thinking as well, I mean, and this probably isn't marketing specific, it's it's wider than that, but but I think everyone's probably going to need to cut their, cut their cloth accordingly over the next 12 months. It's going to be a little bit challenging and there probably won't be the uh, the huge funding rounds for these businesses on a, on a whim, not mentioning the 15 to 20 minute gross lead deliveries or anything like that but but i think that probably will be uh, a while away before we get funding like that but it's as, as frankie said good fundamental business businesses with good fundamentals they'll yeah it'll be tough but but they'll ride it out Luis, i wanted to come back to you for for my next question i recently read the the next era of uh of d2c is so it's coined direct to community um and it's actually something that um that Trini London CMO Shearer uh, discussed with me on uh, on one of the episodes on the podcast in series one. Why is community building so important? And if, say, a D2C CMO is yet to build a community, where do you think they should start? 
I think the the main beauty of uh, an approach, uh, a Kafbarik to community approach, is is this potential to be closer to people's day to day lives and and to do it in a positive, uh, relevant, and hopefully impactful way. And I think it enables for that two way conversation, which ultimately creates that engagement, and and the brand would hope to create some form of emotional connection that will will keep basically the customers or or the audience uh, engaged. Uh, and I think there's also some uh, other reality that has been around for a long, long time is that people's time attention is has been shifting for a long time from traditional media to, to digital online com- social media. Uh, and if brands want to be part of the attention span of their audiences, they will have to one, have a presence and to have make it as strong as possible. And I think the challenges here in terms of Having this strong presence is is to one is to understand what what kind of content will resonate or mostly resonate with the brand's audience, which will imply testing different formats, testing different approaches, and, and measuring those. And I think once they actually identify that, they will have a second challenge, which is how to build this this kind of content uh, in a way that is efficient. Because uh, a lot of times, I think companies find angles and interesting approaches to content, but they just can't afford it at, to do it at scale. And that's a challenge. And I think ultimately, I think companies will want to also understand or measure what what does success look like if they go with a community-led approach, which can be measured in multiple ways, but it's just traditionally less easy to track. So, so all in all, I think it's it's an approach that can and, and work. Uh, it works for multiple businesses. I think it may not work for all, but definitely there is there is room to to be explored in the I would say the majority of businesses with some challenges, of course, associated to it. Frankie, Tushar, do, do you guys have any experience of of building communities in Bella and Duke, obviously now, but but Frankie, current or previous? Yeah, I think uh, in in Bella and Duke specifically, pet owners love to talk about their pets. So, you know, if you start from that position, uh, it is much more easier to build a community on the back of that vis-a-vis if you're dealing with uh, another simpler commodity product, which, which is difficult to, to make a community out of. So I think from our perspective, you know, I, I echo everything what Luis was, was saying over there, that um, in my perspective, true businesses, true growth can be underpinned by strong community, customer community. That is very important for business to, to listen and, and learn and, and participate in conversations where they need to participate, but more importantly, act as an observer in, in those communities. Um, I've noticed specifically with Bella and Duke, where we have a such a strong community uh, within our Facebook groups that uh, the consumers tell us, you know, they, they champion us when we're doing things right, but they also tell us when we're not doing things properly. But, but equally, they give us really good insight around uh, new product developments. And something for me where it was a bit of a, a pleasant surprise from the community recently is um, we all, obviously, we all just been in the pandemic and been on Zoom calls or Teams or Google for so long. And most of us still operate like that from a digital community perspective. But when we invited them to our own house, as in the, the headquarter office, and invited them to see our factory and our premises, the community just went absolutely upbeat and delighted about it because they said, here's a brand who's opening their doors and actually getting us to see behind the scenes. So I think when we did that, we didn't fully appreciate the uh, the cascading impact, positive impact will have, but that just systematically shifted the narrative through these people who were invited within the community forums that actually here's an authentic brand and this is a true authentic community which has nothing to hide and is happy to open its doors. So definitely believe the power of community. And I think the key word for me is authenticity. Like being transparent and authentic is, is the, the truth of a good community. And I guess you, those customers, they're, they're customers for life, right? They're, yeah, they're, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. We, we've won them over. They, they're going to become evangelists of, of Bell and Duke going forward 100%. Probably even higher than a customer for life. They're, they're one above. They're, as you said, yeah. an evangelist for the brand. Frankie? Uh, I'm glad about the question because it gives me a chance to rant about a bugbear and uh, <laughs> and also just, you know, add some disagreement in the mix mm-hmm. for entertainment purposes. Um, I'm sure the, the listeners will be keen to hear. 
So like the bugbear is that like most people say community when they mean audience. An Instagram following is not a community. It's just an audience. It's just normal marketing. We don't need a new name for that. And most brands who say they have a community don't have a community. They have an audience. And the people who do it well have fans, the audience who actually care about the brand. It sounds like Bell and Duke do have a community because the community are talking to each other and talking to them uh, back to the brand. That's community, not an audience, and is incredibly valuable. I think it's a great idea to invest in it. And um, authenticity, as you say, and transparency are the key and also a lot of fun. Like the, we're the small brands fighting the big ones. If you're in this game, you're the small, you're, 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 you know, you're the David in the Goliath, again, there's a Goliath out there in your category. There's one thing they can never do, which is be small, be transparent, because they're massive companies. And that's totally disinteresting and completely impractical for them to open their doors and show their people and tell the stories of their people and communicate directly with their with their audience. So it's a great idea, but we've got to stop using the word community when we mean audience. No, fair. And and I absolutely love a little bit of balance as well. So that's that's great. Tusha. I've got this one. I've down down for you. D2C has helped transform marketing in more traditional, I would say, and say non-disrupted sectors, such as automotive, for example. Which sectors or what sectors do you think D2C commerce or marketing can still help to transform? Yes, it's it's a really good question. I think um thinking about this for a for a few days, to be honest, I think. So I I, just, I don't have one, but I probably have a few. So I'll give you my, my my pennies worth on that. I think for me, one of the key things I've been thinking around the context of where we are as a nation, economy, recession, etc., and where does untapped potential lie for businesses, so whether it's T two C or, or retail. And one of the things which I recently came across, uh, which is almost like a disruptor, is getting retailers to to leverage the footfall they're getting but from an advertisement uh, landscape perspective. So to give you an example, TFL, which is mm-hmm. the Transport of London, they do all, all the outdoor ads and obviously they, they make a good amount of revenue on the back of that. But if you imagine major supermarket retailers opening their doors to, and not just their, their digital doors, but also their uh, retail doors, their physical presence doors to brands where we can leverage that from an advertisement perspective and they can make ad revenue on the, on the back of that. Is I think is, is an untapped potential, which I think hopefully any retailer listening to us right now would be thinking about it. And I think that's that's for me is is one industry. Now, now I have seen this in in the American markets, uh, mm-hmm. and as an example, I would say probably Walmart is doing this, or have been testing this, and they're making some good progress on it. But I haven't seen any British retailer or any other retailers out here working with challenger brands or other D two C brands who are saying like, hey, listen, we've got so much real estate. What do you think about it? And uh, we obviously got first-party data. If you'd like to give it a go, I think that to me can get very interesting very quickly, especially on the back of challenges we've all had in the the meta space and <laughs> from a attribution iOS fourteen problem. Interesting. I'm just going to ask you there as well about the US brands. Just it, it got me thinking, and and I mean, I grew up in the states when I was younger and and, and into American sports, so I still have family out there and and still follow it. Do you guys as marketeers, do you keep an eye on US brands and what they're doing? Because it always seems that there seems to be someone in the US that does it first and then it's kind of normally adopted by by Europe. It might not be the case, but just I'm I'm more from a consumer perspective saying that. Is is that the case? Do you guys keep an eye on the US just to see, oh, that's an interesting one. Maybe we can try and do that and adapt it here over over in the UK or Europe? I'd say that most DC brands in the UK are just copies of American companies. Yeah, I would uh, I would agree with that. I think generally speaking, <laughs> when there's a, a new, new, new D2C company in, <laughs> in the UK, it's likely been trialed in, in the US. And I think it's interesting because it, it, it provides a bit of a, a preview of, of what a reality can look like. And it also serves as a uh, kind of a test market to understand if, if uh, brands can be scaled across like other continents and particularly Europe. So I think... I would say yes, but not in a proactive manner. It's mm-hmm. more like, oh, yes, it, it was it was already existing in the States. Is that why they do it then, do you think, and why it probably happens there first? Because they've got such a big demographic to test it on. For, they've got pretty much a continent compared to us, yeah. 
Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, 100%, Luis. I was probably going to say the same thing as you. Um, I think there's that. And and, and let's not forget the, the funding capacity of US is, is far, far greater in terms of private equity venture capitalists than, than UK yeah. uh, as a whole. So that, um, yeah, all that testing and, and all that funding is, 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 um, is a balance for them. Uh, they also spend twice as much per capita on advertising in the US than we do in the UK. So it's not just about the population. They just love buying stuff. <laughs> and the advertising industry is always going to be a step ahead of us as a result of being way, way, way bigger. Mm-hmm. The infrastructure for D2C and online e-commerce brands is also always going to be well ahead. You can plug and play in your DTC store over there in ways that you can't do here. It's much easier to get started, more capital, more infrastructure, more advanced advertising. Do you as D2C marketeers go then, I wouldn't mind a bit of America, I'd go over there and do some stuff. It might be might be interesting, yeah? Yeah, definitely. I would say from an experience point of view, 100%. Even, even right now, when you look at some of the subscription events which happen in the States, uh, they're far ahead to what we are operating in the UK market and even Europe market as a general, because they've tested so much to the nth degree that the insights they have, they can be very direct. And, and we know how Americans are. They can be very direct and say, yeah, that's not going to work or don't do that. Like, yeah, we wasted a million pounds and so don't, don't, don't even go there. So don't worry about that. <laughs> I wanted to quickly get in a couple of questions from, uh, from our sponsor this season. We have We Discover uh, has kindly uh, sponsored the season of episodes on the scale of one to tech. So Frankie, I've got one for you here. What are some of the tactics you're employing from a marketing or performance marketing perspective to prepare for the downturn in consumer confidence? Some of the tactics that we are bringing in to play at Finisterre to prepare for the downturn in consumer confidence. We are already in the downturn of consumer confidence. We've already felt it. I hope it won't get too much worse. We'll see what happens. Some of the tactics we're bringing in do less better, more of a strategy than a tactic, but it leads to like sorts of tactical decisions. We had a huge period of growth through through the pandemic, like most T2C brands, and as a result, had you know opportunity everywhere. And over the last couple of months, we've had to be quick to rein that back in and be quick to cut things that we didn't have high confidence in, get back to basics focus on the big levers that can really move the needle, cut back on experimentation, cut back on risky plays and uh, wilder bets. So those, that's the direction of travel in our decision-making. Some of those riskier bets, you know, things like longer payback initiatives that, uh, you know, take a bet on, you're never really going to know if it's going to work. But, uh, you know, if, if it feels like it could be a big win if it pays off. We're reining back in because we're still not spending much versus our addressable market mm. uh, on Meta. So actually have high confidence in Meta as a channel for us. Particularly as we haven't really run great ads in the first couple of years on the platform. And so we're really just doubling down on much better Meta ads than we've run in the past. And we've got a creative team who can nail it, but haven't really given it the attention. So that's an example of you know do less better, focus on the big wins, don't get distracted by like the new shiny tactics would be my advice. If you can, you know, still big basic building blocks of acquisition, if you get them right, uh, it'll be it'll probably be the best bet through tougher times. So if I'm a growth marketeer then in a startup more so, where obviously there is a lot of test and learn activity. I know you said there it's about doing less and doing doing less better. I guess how do you try and stop that? stunting of creativity is is there still a way for those startups to be able to do that test and learn or is it more a case of look for the foreseeable until we get into calmer waters let's just just do what you know or more of a copycat type basis do what other companies do well and and we'll just do that and we'll do some testing when we're we're on the other side type thing i think the testing mindset is something you can apply at big and small scale day to day i think that doesn't become less important if it's tougher trading conditions. You just probably have less resource to run lots of big risky tests than when times are easier, right? Tests are less likely to work if the uh, audience are less likely to respond. Mm-hmm. So just got to be a bit more, bit more picky. Don't change the mindset. Probably runs just the same number of tests, but you know, smaller ones focusing on the channels and the parts of your marketing system that you have some high confidence in and optimizing them 
rather than really taking wild bets at at new brand new things to marketing mix or things that are much harder to measure. Mm-hmm. Okay, wonderful. Luis, I wanted to ask this one to you. In most industries, margins are likely to be compressed over the foreseeable future. So how should brands think about making their performance marketing more efficient? So I think companies need to have a really, really good understanding of, of their uh, marketing profitability. I think that's, that's really, really important. And the first step on, within that is to have strong, either strong attribution model or maybe even more than one attribution model. So a brand company can understand the rate that they are acquiring customers or the cost of, of their customer acquisition. I also think they need to have a very strong understanding of, of the lifetime value and, and on the back of those two understanding the ROI per channel. Then I think companies need to have or brands need to have a really strong steer on an ongoing basis on how they are performing and be very much on top uh, of their spend and their optimization, their kind of marketing activity optimization. Also, potentially, bear in mind that they might want to, on occasion, sacrifice volume to acquire more profitable customers or sacrifice a bit of profitability to acquire more volume. It's going to be a game of, or a product of volume of, of uh, say, acquisition and, and, their prof- and the profitability of that volume. And I think in, in the later stages of, of acquisition is, is, a, is about retaining those customers and keeping them engaged throughout, throughout their lifetime with the company. And I think that's where CRM starts to take more of a play. One of the things we do a lot at HelloFresh when we work on retention is to, we talk about profitably increase retention. And, and what we mean by that is we, we can test a whole range of hypotheses within, within the business, but we will only roll out the ones that profitably increase retention. And that means we need to, to kind of really understand the, the pound impact uh, of, of the benefit that these, these retention initiatives create against the cost of running those initiatives. So I think there is kind of a dual side in the answer to your question, which is one really ensure that uh, you have the right mechanisms to, to, to track the profitability of your marketing acquisition efforts and second uh, have the right mechanisms or kind of push for mechanisms to understand how to retain customers keep them engaged in a profitable manner all right wonderful i want to i'm going to come back onto something about attribution in a bit but i, I just wanted to ask uh Tushar, how do you use performance marketing channels to extend your customer's lifetime value? Put in another way, if, if discounting is used for an initial customer acquisition, how do you use performance marketing channels to reduce customer churn? I think for me, Alex, it's more around the, the balance of first box discount or first month discount, however you want to put it, versus the amount of churn your business can afford. So generally, in my experience, uh, the relationship is quite inverse. The higher the discount on the first box, the, the higher the churn, and the lower the discount, you know, the, the higher the retention. So I think the, the balance of that, and again, this goes to, to good high-performance teams or, or, or good head of growths, that they look at the, the promotional, the discount strategy, not in isolation, but looking at what is required from a channel perspective. Because each channel would have an own respective role to play and understanding that along with the balance of first box, second box, third box, if you're a subscription brand, mm-hmm. or first month, second month, third month, and understanding what is the correct balance for getting high volume of customers versus what is allowable for you to lose on your second box customers and your third box customers. So balance is, becomes very key in this. And, and that only comes from test and learn. I mean, uh, no brand will say, yeah, we, we figured it out. <laughs> this, is the, this is the golden formula. It doesn't work like that. You, you just have to constantly keep testing and iterating it because consumer attitudes now more than ever has changed. So what worked six months ago will not work in the next 12 months. So I think to me that that is the, the essence of it. Okay, fantastic. Now, a question that I was, um, I, I don't want to ask it just to any one of you, I want everyone's opinion on this, but I'll start with you, Frankie, and then we'll we'll work our way around. Aside from your own business and the previous two as well, in D2C anyway, which companies do you admire the most when it comes to marketing within the D2C space right now? 
the brands I admire, the brands that use creative to differentiate well, right? Build actually good creative brands. I think mm-hmm. those are the ones I admire, right? Because there's two ways you can add value and um, win the game in your category. One is you can make a functionally better product, a quicker delivery, and a cheaper food box. That's a great way to build a big business. I guess my admiration comes from the brands that go further and actually use irrational parts of our brain to win the business battle. You know, that's where I get really excited. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's, um, you know, it's obviously in, in, in clothing brands where we see that done best, right? That's probably the category in D2C where things are most rational. The purchase decision is most irrational. It's down to the ethereal creative side of a company to win or lose the battle for the business and i find that really fascinating i i really admire the brands who win in that win through that through that strategy in their categories it's also turns out the most defensible long-term strategy if you can crack it you can never beat heinz at ketchup because of the brand Mm -hmm. and that's phenomenally interesting to me someone could always make a more functionally better product than yours very long term but if you build a fantastic brand, they can't beat it. So it's rare, but that's where I get my, I guess my admiration comes to brands like that. A good example being maybe Rafa and the cycling brand, they're building a great brand. It'd be very hard to knock them off from their category. Okay. All right. Lovely. Similar to, to what Frank has just said regarding the brand, um, my example or my admiration is actually from a disruptor who has obviously disrupted the market in the automobile industry. Never in, in my lifetime, I thought I would be ever looking at buying a car just online and not having to visit a showroom that to me even last year was unheard of so so to me i'm in true admiration of that that someone really looking at that from a different lens completely disrupting the market and the timing of it i think the timing of it getting it right just before the pandemic was exceptional do you think that was more luck though could be uh could be but also even even like that i mean we we've seen overnight successes The, the, the key for us to see is how do they sustain that business model in this economic environment in the future? Because their strategy has been to act big, you know, go blow up. Let's let's say that yep. we are this big business, and uh, you know, you have uh, it's obviously it's, it's it's a very thoughtful purchase. Like you, it's not a it's not a purchase that you would just not think about it. But having done that, and now going back into you know high street, uh, I would say outlets, and going back mm-hmm. into uh, doing any form of uh, obviously showroom model, which is uh, the other way around of thinking about it. Uh, so, so for me, yeah, I think yes, definitely could be a bit lucky, but time will tell. Again, you know, if, if they're really strong unit economics behind the scenes, then they will weather through the storm and and come back equally strong. But I'm truly at, in admiration with the timing of it and the proposition and the, the strategy of let's act bigger than we actually are. Definitely, and personally, I always think. There, there always needs to be a, a little little element of luck everywhere anyway. Yeah. So that's yeah. that's fine. Luis, what about yourself? What do you think? I think there are like I was thinking about well, heads on soon the guys uh, showing their uh, views. I think there's three three elements of, of brand marketing efforts that like, I really admire. One is I think when when a brand manages to to develop a creative that really stands out from the crowd. And I think it's generally speaking, the media landscape is so crowded with things trying to capture our attention that standing out is a challenge per se. And I think when a brand does that effectively, I really, really admire that effort. I think I think like Papier is one of the, the brands I have in mind that that mm-hmm. really I think does a good job at standing out with, with beautiful creatives. So I quite admire that. I think the, the the second one is is brands that can elaborate creatives that I would presume to be effective very in a very efficient way or kind of cheap, kind of in a, I wouldn't say cheap manner, but like with low resources. If you think mm-hmm. about, I don't know if you guys are, are familiar with the latest Airbnb campaign they did, uh, which they show like pictures of, uh, I think it's a family in Tuscany with just sounds in the back. And it's all about like belonging and being part of that environment. The production of that campaign from a cost standpoint must have been relatively, I would assume relatively low. But I think it the, the message came across quite in a quite powerful manner. So, so brands that are able to deliver these creative campaigns in, in a very cost-effective manner, I, I kind of I quite admire that. And then the, the last angle is of brands that are very mission-led 
and mm-hmm. that are able to translate that mission in their creatives. Um, a brand I have as a reference on that is, is Indeed at uh, the Recruitment Cafe, the, the job post. Yeah. With, they did a campaign where, I don't know if you guys recall, which was it's basically a TV, a TV commercial where, whereby you would see it's, it's all about people in the space station, trying the space station on Earth trying to, to get to get a spaceship to the moon. And then they were talking about how the cleaner is part of that effort. So, so everyone plays a role in, in whatever they are doing to, to, to achieve a greater good. And I think it's, it's, it's about that mission, mission ladder kind of perspective, I think is really, really interesting. And it's hard to land. It's really hard to land. But when it lands, I think it, it works really, really well. Wonderful. Emotive adverts as well. I wanted to stick with you, Luis, because you mentioned earlier about attribution. And I know attribution remains a challenging area for all marketeers, especially within D2C. How do you ensure that you're using the right channels then and getting the best sort of bang for your buck within your own business? Yeah. So as I was saying before, I think companies need to get their attribution right. And what I mean by that is uh, they need to develop a, mo- a model that they feel they can trust to make decisions. And and it's not obvious. And, and most of the times to have proper attribution, you will need to have enough data points to develop more sophisticated models that, that will allow you to get a more confident reading on your attribution. But if you have that in place, and maybe you, you marry up with some parallel other attribution models that maybe read from different angles and you start to build a better picture of, of uh, customers are coming from, from a channel standpoint, then I think you have a really good base to start to understand what channels are efficient and which ones are not. But also, uh, and quite importantly, understand what are the saturation levels of spend per channel that will make you probably want to start to reduce or yeah, slow down your spend in those channels to then move, move it to other channels. And I think on the other side of the coin, you really want to make an effort to have a, a strong reading on your lifetime value on a channel by channel basis. And in order to do that, you'll need to have kind of your analytics well structured to provide that visibility on LTV and CAC on a, on a kind of on demand, basically. And uh, that, if you don't have that in place, that will enable you on an ongoing basis, say on a weekly basis, to have a reading and make decisions in an agile manner. And I, I, I still believe that attribution is probably at the core of running a marketing activity in the 21st century. <laughs> I mean, that's something I think businesses like really should thrive to invest and, and have a strong kind of model in place. And I know attribution probably can can be a whole podcast in itself. I know it's such a big area. Do you guys do you share in in Lewis's uh, opinion there any differing thoughts on on attribution? Absolutely, it's the most important thing that any CMO should be thinking about. It's how you measure success of the biggest cost center in your function, the second biggest cost center probably in the business. It's the make or break decision for you and your business which of half of your marketing is a waste of money, which half of your advertising is building the business. And most of us, the secret truth we don't want our CEOs or boards or investors to realize is we're guessing most of the time. And we need to, on the one hand, accept that modern advertising, like traditional advertising, is largely a game of placing informed bets. And we have to stop this like charade that, we're in the digital world, we can track everything and accept that we're placing bets and then work methodically and carefully towards more informed bets and away from guesswork. So we all need to invest in it. The available tools out there are atrocious and they've also just been broken by the commitment to a cookie-less future. So tracking people across the internet is a future we have to prepare to not have. And as a result, we need new tools and new approaches to uh, sensible attribution rather than smoke and mirrors, promise the world, actually don't be any better than guesswork attribution, which is most of the, the things out there. I've actually obsessed over this the last couple of months and uh, would be really keen to talk to anyone listening who wants to learn or help me crack the future of attribution because it's uh, the number one thing on my mind. And uh, yeah, get, you know, get in touch with me on LinkedIn if you want to join the next forum we have all about attribution. 
I think a wonderfully uh, honest uh, answer there, and I could see the guys all, all nodding. Yeah, I think um, any CMO worth his salt, uh, if he says I've nailed it, I've cracked it, is kidding himself and and, and his peers as well. Is the honest truth? We attribution is 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 such a I would say deep and and sensitive subject at the same time because you constantly have to evolve your marketing channel mix, and that means constantly have to evolve your attribution mix. So from my perspective, it's um, it's it's obviously doing the same as we always believe in D2C performance test and learn, keep doing it. But more importantly, as the business matures and scale, understanding the codependency of each channel as well and the correlations. So as as a business grows, understanding, okay, we're going to start a new channel, whether it's TV, what impact does it have on my digital landscape or doing other offline activity? What impact does it have on other landscapes or it's that insight, that level of insight, informed decision-making, which Frankie and, and Luis both referred to, becomes very important as you start investing into advertisement in the million pounds and, and beyond. So to me, just staying on top of that, taking the best informed decision and and being honest and, and having some fun with it. So, Okay, brilliant. I wanted to... Um to finish up with one sort of final question to you all. And, and just if you can, if you can try within a sentence or so, D2C marketing, next 12 months, what's what's the biggest challenge that you're going to come up against? I think our main challenge will be reposition our positioning, which kind of sounds, sounds a bit weird, towards uh, value for money. So mm. if, if you think a brand may have a few call it brand benefits, dependent on the times we live, you might, some might be more relevant than others, right? And I think in the next, say, 12 months, understanding how to position the brand to showcase the value it, it, uh, it delivers, in particular, pos- and possibly against competitors or uh, other alter- alternatives, is going to be key for the business. So when, you, when we think about driving consideration further, we have explored many angles in the past, but next year, next twelve months in our radar will be to to land this this value for money message is really really important for us. I think the biggest challenge for for us as Bell and Duke will be, as Luis might say, it's also going to be a value proposition. Mm-hmm. Like, how do we still manage growth in a recessionary or inflationary environment and do right by our customers? Constantly reinforce the message from a brand perspective that uh, this is a life well well loved for your pet. Uh, you have to write by them. Uh, you shouldn't sacrifice on nutrition because you wouldn't do that for your own family. So why would you do that for your pet? Um, that reinforcement of message and and doing any form of additional external value add propositions as part of their current subscription plan is going to be hugely important for us to drive growth forward. And I think that will require a bit of, um, I would say, investment in, in, in brand marketing but also taking a long-term perspective, a long-term view on it, which can become challenging in these times when uh, P&Ls are getting scrutinized on a monthly basis. So, Wonderful. And Frankie? I think the biggest challenge of the next 12 months for D2C brands is going to be the continued increase in the, in the ratio of competition to demand. Right? We, we're used to a nice steady 15 10% growth year on year just in people buying online and um, buying from brands that tend to command a premium, like more expensive brands because they get the convenience, because you get extra content, because you like the brand. I think we're going to have that. We're probably not going to see that growth over the next 12 months in in kind of un- underlying demand in lots of categories online that we're very, very used to. And it's given us all the helping hand up if you look at the last 10 years. But we, uh, on, on the flip side, we have had a huge number of new competitors into nearly every category, mm-hmm. big companies getting out together and getting their e-commerce sorted out. And conversely, loads of small brands coming in and copying the, the brands that have followed the path and worked out how to make it work. So competition has increased. I don't think demand is going to increase very much. And we're, we're used to a world where demand just constantly increases as people shop more online. Okay, wonderful. Now, before I let you all go, I, I couldn't let you go without uh, offering you guys the opportunity for a, for a quick little personal and business plug. So I'll start just in the screens that I see you. So Luis, you're up first. If people want to get in touch with you to talk more about what we've discussed today, 
where's the best way for them to get in touch? And then also, I guess, with HelloFresh as well, not that it needs n- much of an introduction, but uh, where, where should they go? So if you, if you want to reach out to me, the easiest way is to, is to reach out on, on LinkedIn. I, I'm quite on top of it. So, so if, you, if you want to discuss anything business-related or marketing-related, happy to, to, to chat. Uh, I mean, I think most people are familiar with HelloFresh, the living recipe box in the UK. <laughs> if you want, if you have never tried, or you want to try. Head to HelloFresh.co.uk, or you can download the app. Uh, and I, I am very confident you'll have a very, very good experience with us. Wonderful, Tusha. Yeah, I think for me, if you want to get in touch with me or or pick my brain for anything we discussed today, it's uh, LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn, mm-hmm. and the the plug is called Tushar, uh, just as my name, K-A-U-L-T-U-S-H-A-R. And from a business brand perspective, um, yeah, our website's bellanduke.com. And uh, definitely, uh, we obviously want to be uh, available for all pets in the UK and, mm-hmm. and eventually in, in Europe as well. And to get any offer on the website, you can use uh, Scale of One, which is the, the coupon code, and you can get 50% discount on your first box. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you. And Frankie? didn't have the the foresight to line up a discount code <laughs> for the listeners damn that was a pro move definitely check out finister and everything they're into if you don't know about them they're the only place you should buy your clothing and they've just released an amazing new range of responsibly made outdoor wear for the season uh if you want to get in touch with me get me on linkedin i'm going to start to post a lot there particularly interested in attribution and anyone who wants to talk about it for any reason if you want to get a free course i'm going to make attribution send me a message on LinkedIn or on Twitter. It's Frankie with a Y at Hill. Lovely, lovely. Well, look, guys, again, thank you all very much for your time. It's been a pleasure to have you on and, and I've broken my duck now with, uh, with having more than one guest on. So uh, yeah, look, it's been lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Alex. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this month's episode. If you have anything you'd like to share, then please feel free to get in touch with me. If you've enjoyed the show, then please do leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And as always, you can follow us on our LinkedIn company page or on Twitter using the handle at S-O-O-T-T podcast. Until next time, take care. This month's episode is sponsored by WeDiscover. WeDiscover has supported high-growth companies like CarWow, ThreadFi, and many more. And as specialists in paid search and marketing technology, WeDiscover aims to be the most consistent source of growth for their clients. If you're a scale-up with multi-million pound growth targets or an already big and successful company looking to invest smarter, our friends at WeDiscover will make a great extension to your team. You can click the link in the show notes or go to we-discover.com to learn more and book a free consultation.